Hello and welcome to Healthline 3. I'm Terry Simmons and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Antonio Pizarro of Willis Knight and Pelvic and Reconstructive GYN Surgery. We're going to be talking about the advances in women's health today. We'll be taking your calls throughout the show and as a reminder please make sure you're in a quiet room with your TV turned all the way down so we can be sure and hear your questions and you can hear the answers. The number to call is 318-219-4569 and you'll see it along the bottom of your screen throughout the show. So, Dr. Pizarro, thank you so much. It's good to be with you. <laughs> We've been talking nonstop since we had the little tease at 11.45 during the midday, and it's just fascinating. Let's refresh Great. everybody about your specialty and what you do exactly. I'm a women's health specialist. My uh, initial specialty is OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology. I trained in delivering babies and doing surgery uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And after I left what's called residency, after medical school you do a residency, and then my spe subspecialty after that is what's called urogynecology, or the long term is female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, but we call it urogynecology. The idea is to treat conditions that, that affect the pelvic floor, which is the part of the body that regulates things like urinary control and, and support of the pelvic organs. And so that specialty deals with surgeries to correct some problems, also uh, ways to identify non-surgical treatments that help patients with bother that they can develop as a result of childbirth. So childbirth causes a lot of changes in the body, damage to the nerves and muscles, and my specialty deals with, with addressing those symptoms as, as they arise. Okay, and when you talk about the pelvic floor, and we hear those terms a lot, especially if you, you, are, you are concerned about your health and you do go to the doctor and you talk about things, you're informed about your own body, what does that actually mean? What is the pelvic floor, what does that include? The pelvic floor is a group of tissues in the pelvis, pr primarily the muscles that support the pelvic organs in, in men and women. We both have pelvic floors, but I specialize in women, I don't treat men, uh, and the pelvic floor those muscles are the ones, a good way to think of those muscles are the muscles that we use every day to try to control things like, for example, if, if you uh, need to use the restroom but you don't want to quite yet, you might use those muscles consciously. Now, most of the time we don't use them consciously, but often that's, that's a good way to think of what those muscles comprise. And then, of course, the other tissues that surround those, those muscles and the nerves that supply those muscles, the blood vessels that, that, that uh, reside there. That's what the pelvic floor refers to. And what the, the reason that I do what I do is because, as I mentioned, typically with childbirth, that's the main mm. change. After childbirth, that area will change. And not every patient will have problems there, but, but many will. And they'll develop symptoms like urinary incontinence, which is leakage of urine. Uh, difficulty uh, with painful intercourse, loss of support of the actual organs where these organs, the, the vaginal tissue will literally lose support and, and many patients uh, fall out of the body to an extent and that right. can be very bothersome. And so treatments all the way from careful observation and exercise to some in pretty invasive surgeries can be done to treat that depending on what's going on. Okay, and when you talk about, so it involves the muscles really, and when you talk about incontinence, like what is it that, is it because of the muscles can't contract anymore? They can't, they're, what's going on with that? There's different reasons for a woman to have trouble con controlling her urine. Right. Uh, there's a bunch of different reasons, but, the, but what it all boils down to is that something in the pelvic floor isn't working well, whether it's just strength, whether it's uh, sensitivity of, of the bladder itself, whether it's uh, torn areas that might need to be literally repaired with some form of surgery, it varies. And that's one of the things uh, that I wanted to discuss today is really sort of in part how things have changed over the past 30, 40 years, maybe even longer. We'll, we talked about some of the things that went back to the 1960s. 
and just my specialty of pelvic floor disorders has changed so much and but the one thing that doesn't change is the human body and so in my specialty the one thing that doesn't change is that when when childbirth happens uh, especially not what we're going to call natural childbirth uh, without a c-section but even then sometimes when childbirth happens there's going to be changes to the body and that that's never going to change we're, we're not probably never going to be able to undo that not in my lifetime <laughs> to prevent that those changes and so right. as a result we have to try to uh, uh, address the symptoms if they arise right and as you know and what we learned too if we've had a baby it's amazing what the changes the whole body actually goes into whether it's preparing for the birth itself and some things go back some things are different forever something can change your anatomy inside completely if yeah, you've had a baby. That's right. And if you have the pelvic floor, does it matter if you've had a vaginal birth or cesarean? If you have cesarean, does that still, are you still affected? I, I don't know if that's been settled yet. I think the answer is probably yes. If, mm -hmm. if, you, if a patient's had only cesarean sections, then probably uh, the, some of the symptoms that, that arise from otherwise having natural childbirth won't arise. But I, I don't know that that's been settled, but the way I think of it is the following. When I was in training, there was a well-known study of of uh, several hundred patients who had not had children. Mm -hmm. And many of them had actually never had uh, any kind of intimacy. And they still developed urinary symptoms in the same proportion wow. as patients who had. Mm -hmm. And so it's complicated, and, and it, it's more than one factor that can lead to that. And it's interesting, as I think back to, to, to back then, the way we thought of things, we've refined some of the thinking. Not, all of it, not a lot of it's changed, though, because childbirth seems to be the, 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 the number one factor that causes those changes. Well, that's really fascinating because we're talking about the advances, not only in screening, but treatments, but the information, how science is advancing. To think about that, it, it happening in some, even if it happened in one woman who didn't have any of that, no intimacy, no children, but yet still had that. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to find out, and I know research is being done, it always is, find out if it's lifestyle or what is it that can cause there are certain so things many in the body. It's interesting you said lifestyle because one thing that comes to mind and something I, I, that intersects with what I do just a little bit, and I'll get into that, is that it just popped in my mind about advances in women's health. How many people do you know that smoke Right. Fewer and fewer. Right. When I was in high school, everybody smoked. Mm -hmm. And when I was, and, and if you watch TV shows, people would light up all the time. Yes. Fewer and fewer people smoke. And although the number one killer, the number one cancer killer right now is still lung cancer, believe it or not, it's a rare cancer. That's still the number one killer. It's not ah. the most common cancer, but it's the number one killer uh, of women is lung cancer. Wow. Cancer killer. Number cancer one cancer killer. killer. Yes, not cancer. the number one killer. Is, is lung cancer. Hmm. But fewer and fewer people smoke these days. And why? Because there's been advances in the way that we communicate, the things we learn. There have been it's so many things. There have been legal uh, things, lawsuits and sure. of, the, of the tobacco companies. But think about that. Just that one advancement in the consciousness of our society. Don't smoke. It's n there's nothing good about it. Yeah. Has reduced a lot of the problems in our, in our society with, with health. Mm -hmm. Heart disease has been uh, has improved, although it's still a major, major problem. So these are the kind of things that I think are interesting. You, you touched about, you talked about lifestyle, mm -hmm. and we were talking earlier about the information age. We know so much more as patients than we ever have. Yeah. That can be good and bad, but we have so much more information at our fingertips. And now, so from the standpoint of, of women's health, 
uh, I see patients every day that say something like, I saw this on the internet, will this help me? And I'll say, well, I'm, and they'll, then they'll follow with, I know you hate it when patients look at the internet. I said, no, I encourage people to look at the internet. Read what you can, but then let's talk about what that is. And your question is, will that help me? My answer is, well, maybe, <laughs> but uh, maybe not. Let's, let's it's see. It's still what, individual. For sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and we do. We talked about fascinating. I was asking you, do you think that the internet has helped or hurt the industry, and you're all for it, you know? But we also talked about, and we bring it up a lot. Go ahead and do the research. It's wonderful that we have this much information, but then don't necessarily act on it. Bring it to your doctor. Talk about it. Listen to what your doctor has to say. It's a great way to open up the communication where you might not have even known to ask that question. So true. One of the biggest advances in healthcare and in, in women's health, in particular, because that's what I do, and I'm sure in other specialties, obviously. Has has been, as we mentioned earlier, information and knowledge. And I, I can only imagine what it might have been like to be a patient in 1940. You know, you probably just walk in and you're told what you need. Now it's always a conversation. And it's often when, I, when I'm with the patient and it's not a two-way conversation, I, I become concerned that maybe we're not communicating well. I want to be sure they have questions and that they ha and, and often that they bring something to me about what, what it is that they think is going on. That's super important and it helps both of us have a sense of, of how things will go forward. So the internet has been great. The internet has also ushered in the era of what we call the electronic health record. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read a doctor's note uh, from <laughs> 1985, but not only can you almost not read it, I mean, my handwriting's terrible, and, but also I'm being a little silly, but, but the communication it's has true. improved. And there's, there's, been, there's been friction, there's been concern about the cost of electronic health records. But now, by and large, if our, uh, the audience will, when they go to their doctor or, or nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, uh, nurse, to get health care, they're using a computer. And there's good and bad to that. But uh, we, we've advanced so much. I've been using electronic health records since 2007. And just in that time, the the improvements and the ability to use that information to communicate with other physicians, to give patients their information if they need it has just been, and to, and to describe what I saw during that visit has it's just been remarkable. So there's good and bad to everything, but there's no question that, that, that the electronic health record has been a big advancement in women's health and the ability to, to care for patients. Oh, I can imagine, even just from a patient standpoint, because I can remember everything was handwritten. The doctor would come in and write everything down and, and log everything in the charts then and make notes to go back and follow up afterwards. And then the first time a doctor walked in, wheeled in the cart with the computer and asked me questions and put it in the computer as I was talking and bringing up things too, saying, what about this, what about this? It was a really, it was an amazing two-way conversation where he was looking things up as I was talking, and, and it was just interesting. This information, this two-way street, and plus it was all typed in there, it was done, printed it out, and I got to take what I needed to home. Well, and, and you Incredible. touched on something. Think about this. The, I, I don't personally do this uh, with, with my health care. Uh, I probably should, but a lot of patients I'll say, well, we're, uh, you're having a problem. Did you see a doctor? Yes, I saw a doctor a couple of weeks ago, and they, they told me to see you, but they said this. And I say, well, uh, well uh, show me what they, what they said. And they'll pull it up on their phone. Uh. And you know, that's with their permission. I can't sure. pull their stuff up. But, uh, or they'll say, I had this test. And they'll have it on their phone. And that is so useful. And again, nothing's perfect. And there's always a downside to everything in life. But, but the, but the informa information that we get through the internet with the help of the internet has been revolutionary. And, now, and, and so those are the things that I say you can never change we really can't change, and I mean, this may be oversimplifying things, but I often think of we can't really change the human body. We're not going to be able to change the way we respond to things. 
Uh, so for example, smoking. If we start smoking again, we're gonna have the same problems that we had before we quit. But we can, some of the things that are evolving around us like uh, techn technology have been great. So one thing that's in my specialty that's been amazing, and, and I t I've taken it for granted in my entire career, I've been a physician since 1997, is the pap smear. Yeah. The pap smear is a test. Right. It's, it's just a test. It's, you know, the pap smear refers to the idea of taking uh, cells with, by simply uh, scraping them off uh, gently uh, <laughs> and sending those cells to be looked at under the microscope. That's what the pap smear is. And it can come from everywhere. A pap smear is T not... Technically speaking, yeah, yeah, tied you can to do any certain area of the body. That's right. We think of the pap smear in women's health as yeah. part of the female exam, the cervix, which is the opening of the womb, or the vagina, depending on the patient's case, uh, wh where the cells are taken. But I mean, just so the patient, so people understand the, the pap smear is a test. You could do a pap smear of my hand. It sounds silly to say that, but it's true. <laughs> the cells can be sloughed off and, and sent off and looked at because pap refers to the way that this doctor, Dr. Papanikolaou, in the, who was born in the, who developed this technology mm. in, I think in the 1920s. Yeah. Or started studying it in the 1920s. Well, then developed it, spe you know, specifically to test for cancer of the cervix, which is the opening of the womb. And that cancer was a death sentence for forever yeah. until the pap smear was developed and we could try to catch that, that cancer early or catch the precursors of that cancer, the early cells that were turning into cancer. So in the second part of the 20th century, that revolutionized medicine. Well, the pap smear has been refined just in my lifetime to a much more accurate test in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Just since I started practicing medicine, all the way from the way that test is collected to the way it's processed and to, the, and to some of the other tests that come around the pap smear. Now we do, for example, in addition to just looking at the cells, we can test for what we have known for a long time was the cause of cervical cancer, or one of the main, the, the main cause is a, a virus called HPV. Mm -hmm. That virus, now we test for it, and not always, but in many cases, we test for that virus. Yeah. And so if a patient does has no virus and no abnormal cells, she's probably is, is uh, definitely doesn't have cervical cancer, but is safe now. We, for that patient, we might not repeat a pap for five years. Whereas when I was a medical student and a resident, and even early in my career, you got a pap every year. Yeah. So things like this have been really uh, uh, developed over time. But they, but they, as I've reflected on this, talk today, it's been something that has really motivated me to, to think how, how we take some things for granted, yeah. but that over time they, they refine and improve. Yes, it's really, it's incredible, yeah. the things that now they advance, and that, um, that culture and education is keeping up with the science of it, like we smoke less because of a lot of pressure to stop doing that, uh, and at the same time science is like going right along with tests and advancement, so it's all advancing together. Oh, no do, you, do you find at any time that one is that's a really going good a little question. further than the other? I, I think that's a good question. I think that I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I, w I would say that probably science is, uh, in, in some cases, mm -hmm. has found certain things that one could look at and say, man, that's a really good idea, and we don't, a we don't adopt it necessarily in, sure. in many cases. Um, uh, a good example is smoking. Yeah. You know, we've known for since I, before I was a kid that it was bad for you, but people still did it. They didn't mm -hmm. care, and that's fine because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a habit. It's an addiction. It's difficult to overcome. There's, at the time when I was young, there were social pressures to smoke yes. because it, it looked cool or whatever. Or, you know, whatever it is, there were peer pressures. So that might not be the, the most eloquent way to, to, put, to put the idea that sometimes <laughs> science knows, but we don't pay attention. On the other hand, sometimes science goes, goes a little too quick. 
and there are technologies that we could point to that, that people will admit to you will say, well, we have this, this, uh, this new test. This test is great. <laughs> look at what it can show us when really when you look at it 10 years later it never really showed us anything and we adopted it too quickly and maybe it wasn't such a good idea so um, and, and, and surgeries different surgeries that can be considered in that way mm -hmm. so I think to answer your question I think that it's it's sort of a, a, a juggling game a dynamic yeah. of both the, the way patients respond to things and also what St studies in science research shows that we have to bring together. A good, a good example of that is the pap smear. The yeah. pap smear has been adopted by physicians for decades. Patients trust it. We trust it now more than ever. And the added uh, science of the detect detecting that virus has also advanced things in a way that the, the, um, the, the, the rate of cancer death from cervical cancer has, has been relatively low, but the number of cancers is also dropping. So with, with um, uh, pap smears, the, the rate of cancer death just plummeted. That early detection is just incredible. And there's something to be said about a certain test that has been around that long that's still reliable, that's still right. giving us the information that we need to do. Now what we do with the information and the cells that we get is advancing, but that's this right. way of getting it is still here very reliable. Absolutely, that's, a, that's such a good point. You're, you're absolutely right. It's something that, and I, I'm glad you said that because it's something that's been around for decades. And so when we, as I mentioned to you earlier, when we think of advances in healthcare or advances in science, one even, you know, as I was thinking about this today, one thinks, okay, so what's the cool thing that just came out last week or last month or maybe a year ago? <laughs> and that, that's not the way I think I would like most of us to think of what an advance in healthcare is. Because mm -hmm. if, I, if I suffered with I don't, but let's say I had terrible headaches um, and I'm taking a certain medicine and it works pretty good. Well, then they say, well, a brand new medicine just came out last week and it's been FDA approved, brand new. You know, I might want to take that if I talk to my physician or my, uh, my provider, right? I might want to, but does that mean that that's definitely right for me? No. Does it mean that it's definitely better than what I'm taking? No. And remember, it just came out last week. You know, I like to say, don't be the first person to take something, and don't be the last person to take something. <laughs> you know, th those are that. I mean, a little silly there, but but just so it advances, don't necessarily mean something brand new. It, it's something that devolves over time. Why? Because as I said earlier, we don't, we can't change the human body. We're still humans, and we have to try to understand what we're being given as healthcare, whether it's medication, whether it's advice alone, whether it's surgery. We have to tr have some sense of how well that's been studied over time. And as you described, the past been around, adopted clinically for decades, right. but it's being refined and, and now there's new guidelines. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you have a patient who um, has never had cancer, has never had precancer in, in the genital area, in the cervical area, and she's over 65, there are good guidelines that say it's important to consider stopping the pap smear at age 65. And that's a conversation to have with your physician or your, or your nurse practitioner or PA. But the reason for that is, and this is the central question, why would we stop our paps at age 65? Well, the reason is that there's some evidence that it actually could cause harm, lead to unnecessary surgeries. The phrase that's used by the United States Protective Task Force is, that the PAP after age 65 may do more harm than good. Oh, okay, I want to ask you that in a minute, but we have Annette on the line. Hi, okay. Annette, what is your question for Dr. Pizarro? I want to know what can you buy over the counter that's not habit forming for hot flashes? That's a good question. That's a great question, because that touches on the idea of how we look at things. Um, I'm going to answer your question, Annette, but let <laughs> me give you a story. When I was in medical school, I'll never forget this. 
I had a patient who was 80 years old. Uh, so this was in the 90s. And, and she was 80 years old. And she was not taking anything for hot flashes, any kind of hormones. And we started her on, hot, on hormones at age 80. We were, in a way, surprised. I can't believe you're not taking hormones. You need hormones. We used to think of hormones, at least, that's a little, that's just one example, you know. Uh, and I can't speak for every physician, but that's kind of the way we approached it. Because we were convinced that hormones help heart health all the time. They help, they'll help your bones and, and just general well-being, period. And that was just the way we did it. Well, over time, there's been science, which is a little controversial, but there's clear science that suggests that taking hormones has some potential harms, especially in patients um, who, are, who have other medical conditions. And as, at age 80, you probably have something that's affecting your health, high blood pressure or something. So we have to be cautious about using hormones. And so Annette's question is something over the counter that can help hot flashes. Well, if it's a hot flash from what we call menopause, which is that the ovaries have stopped working or have been removed, uh, depending on the case, and that patient doesn't have estrogen anymore, then patients will develop what we call hot flashes. And this is where patients often turn red, they'll get very hot, other people around them aren't hot, patients will sweat, and we treat that one good treatment can be hormones. Now, over the counter, over the counter gives us the sense that it's safe, or the sense that it's, um, you know, we can just get it and do it and, and try it. Uh, the answer to your question, Annette, is be careful about anything you take over the counter for hot flashes. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying be careful because there are some products, for example, that have soy uh, protein. Soy works really well for hot flashes. It, it's not great, but it works pretty well. Well, there are some risks to taking soy. So the first one that comes to mind is that if, if a patient has recovered from breast cancer, mm -hmm. It might be, and you'd have to check with your cancer specialist, but it might be that your cancer specialist does not want you to take soy because soy is, has a plant estrogen in it. So the reason soy works for hot flashes is the way that what we're going to call the prescription estrogen works is because soy has what are called plant estrogens or phytoestrogens. And in my mind, there's not a whole lot of difference between them. I don't know. Maybe there is, but th from a practical standpoint, there are still risks. And especially from the standpoint of something, first thing that comes to mind is, breast cancer, you sure don't want to be taking over-the-counter soy supplements if you're a breast cancer survivor. So to answer your question, I think that uh, the over-the-counter treatments are, uh, we need to be careful about them. Be sure if you take, get one that you take it, take it to your doctor, have him or her look at it and say, okay, this is safe for you. Does that answer your question, Annette? Yes. He did my surgery about 15 years ago, hysterectomy, and he, he, he's just a great doctor. Thank you. You're so sweet. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for calling. And I hope my answer doctor. helped. <laughs> Do you feel like that it's, answered your question? Yes, he did. Oh, I'm glad Thanks you're doing so well. Okay, thank that's you. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, that's always nice that's great. to have a patient wow. call in and Still well, want to know I'm what sorry, you think. I'm sorry she's having hot flashes. It happens. It's, it's a normal part of life. And like I said, we can't change. There's things we can't change. Eventually, patients, w women will lose estrogen supply. It's just in inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, but what to do about it is the question. And That's so right. if the hot flashes, for example, aren't real bad, well, one option is just to keep an eye on it. On the other hand, we know now that just definitely giving estrogen to a patient may not be right for her. 
and we and we also know that some that uh, uh, some of the substitutes that have estrogen in them are not necessarily any better than what we're going to call prescribed estrogen. So people often say, "Well, it's natural." So and that's another word that I find difficult to uh, you know, over the counter. Natural. Well, what does natural mean? Well, one of the most prescribed estrogens in, in the world is is an estrogen that is derived. And this is going to sound strange, but it's true. The medicine and, and there's perfectly a, it's a perfectly good medicine. It's derived from the uh, urine of a pregnant mare, oh. and there's you know there's uh, ethical concerns there with respect to the animal maybe, and I get all that, but I'm not trying to get into that. I will say that it, that's natural. <laughs> Does it mean it's good? Well, it's still estrogen. So now I'm not saying estrogen is bad, right? And I'm not saying right. estrogen replacement is bad. I I, I routinely prescribe estrogen replacement for the right patient for the right reasons right but it's a important conversation to ask wh where we're going with that the reason I'm sort of focusing on that is that the change that we're trying to address is something that is inevitable the, the loss of estrogen supply for a patient but the but now we know that through decades of research that there are things that maybe before we were making some assumptions on that weren't necessarily true mm -hmm. and, and we're developing alternatives there are mm -hmm. non-hormonal alternatives but those are typically by prescription there are some non-hormonal alternatives for hot flashes, but those are not over the counter. Right, it's something we need to learn with terminology, just with food and everything. It may say natural, which Annette did very wise thing with called the doctor to see um, what is good to use over the counter before we do. So, okay. Right. And we have we have Don on the line. Don, what is your question for Dr. Pizarro? Well, I heard you speaking of uh, computers and how y'all are using all these questions. This is really just a general question. I'm wondering if there's some medical facility or university that is collecting the data not just for your specialty all illnesses all the symptoms that we as uh, individuals can go to that uh, and you know they're collecting the symptoms for everything from cancer just anything and you can put in the or research these symptoms to find a, a diagnosis and, and then even how you feel about a uh, consumer doing that there's, to my knowledge, there's not any one place. So I'm, I'm going to give you an example. So there, there is a way to do scientific research. And I was just looking at something earlier on, on hysterectomy, where you could, if a, if a scientific study has been approved to be done by what's called an, uh, um, a review board, which is a group of doctors and scientists that look at that research science, uh, that research proposal, and they say, "Okay, this is this is ethical. You, the, you, the university or the researcher can do this study. It's been ethical and it's been approved, and there's certified uh, what's called institutional review boards across the nation." Then you can say, "Okay, I want to know how many hysterectomies have been done this year, for example," and then you can go through what's called the, um, there, there's a diagnosis assigned and a, and, a, and a treatment code assigned to hysterectomy, for example. Hysterectomy is a surgery where the uterus is removed. Or let's just say, uh, you know, uh, ap 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 appendectomy. We all know what an appendectomy is. Um, or a gallbladder surgery. You can look through and see how many have been done and, and where they were done and where the, whether it was done for uh, 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 patients of a certain age. But that's the only thing I can think of, and you would have to be done, through, that I'm aware of, and that would be done through an approved institutional re review board process, and that would be for, for dedicated research. So to answer your question, I, to my knowledge, there's, there's no way that, you can, that anyone can just access information like that on what was done, to whom it was done, or, or whatever. It's just not, not the way that the computers, the electronic health record works. In fact, the way the electronic health record works 
is that it has to be, there's a certain process whereby what, and I'm glad you asked this question because although the, the internet and the health records I think are an, an amazing advancement in our knowledge and our ability to, do, to deliver care, in order to have an electronic health record, we are required, whoever has it, to pass security uh, requirements and have, you know, I'm not a technician person, I'm not a computer person, but you have know, all the firewalls and have certain qualities of software. You can't just use any, any program. Uh, and also a lot of the, the um, uh, and, and so for example, if you have your own health record and you don't use an internet-based one, you have to have your own, if you're in an office, a physician's office, you have to have your own. So we, in a lot of ways, have much more secure um, records than, than people who have financial records. God, that's wonderful. And we really want to thank Don for that question. It falls right in with the advancement that you've been talking about. All the advances with science, with technology, with research, with culture, everything. That's advancement, fascinating. Advancements are great. Yeah. And, and it, but again, it's as I, I think I mentioned this earlier, it's, we don't want to look at, think of an advance as something that just happened last week right. was the latest and greatest. It can be something that has developed over time. Like I said, I've been using a health record personally for 15 years. Now, uh, it's changed and it's gotten better, but the, but the fundamentals have always been the same, that it has to have security access patients have to um, uh, still receive no normal medical care but uh, it's it's simply processed in, uh, using health records now and right. not, not all doctors use those by the way right and it would be incredible to think that there's one database that it stays up to date with everything that's happening mm -hmm. because that. it's just incredible to to think that could happen yeah. yeah well thank you so much what is one thing you'd like to leave us with today we have a couple of seconds well um, I, I'm just grateful to be here I just hope that patients as they're navigating their healthcare journey that they ask a lot of questions and avail themselves of all the information especially for newer treatments yeah it's been so informative thank you it's been a great discussion thank, thank you, you so much about screening everything preventive I could just talk to you all day this went by quick it did didn't it I it's know it's really good yeah thank you for our callers for calling in and uh, thank you so much for the information, taking time out of your day to be it's a, here. It's a pleasure. We really appreciate it. You enjoy your day. Uh, I will. And thank you, everyone, for watching Healthline 3. Thank you for calling in, and we really appreciate you viewing and, and letting us know that you appreciate Healthline 3. Enjoy your afternoon. We'll see you next time.